Chapter 16, The Victory Lap, Los Angeles, July 14th, 2042. Lars sat on the edge of the cot in a maximum security federal prison cell. The food tray remained exactly where the guard had put it the night before, just inside the bars. Roaches now covered the feast that Lars couldn't stomach. The sun squeezed through the slats in an alleged window, barely reaching his face. The white t-shirt and cotton shorts he had been given stuck to his skin, and his sweat soaked the mattress. A soldier knocked a wooden club against the bars, and another guard swung the door open. Lance stood just outside the cell. He stared down at Lars as if he were a rodent tolerated for too long. Let's go. Disgust and regret tasted the same. Lars obeyed and followed behind him and between the soldiers to a room in an adjoining building. Leave us alone, Lance barked at the guards. He pushed Lars through the doorway. Sit. Lars twitched and raised his head. As he began to stand, Lance shoved him back down. No, you goddamn prick. You're not getting out of anything this time. You could have avoided all this, but you never listened, always trying to have everything your way, you stupid slut. If only you'd just done what I told you. He walked in front of Lars, took hold of his collar, and ripped the front of the shirt. Don't, Lance, please... His whispers inflamed Lance even more. Stand up! He tore Lars's shirt the rest of the way and ripped it off, tying his arms behind him with the shreds. Lance turned to a table and fiddled with the implements laying there. The noon bell rang throughout the amphitheater as the crowd clamored for justice. Portiana turned to Lance as he sat down next to her. I was wondering if you'd make it. Did you get everything you needed? Lance just stared. Lance, dear, are you satisfied? Lance rubbed his knuckles and looked down to notice flecks of blood. He wiped them clean with his napkin and answered, No. Taking the wine glass Portiana offered, he drained it. As the twelfth bell rang out in the amphitheater, a tricolor jeep drove through the phalanx of the honor guard. Minister McDermott stood in the vehicle and waved, casting a glare behind him. Lars stumbled out from behind a second jeep, bloody and filthy with a bag over his head, in front of the camera. His hands were tied together in front of him and fastened to the jeep's rear bumper. He fell forward as the vehicle lurched pulling himself up, and fell again. The palace guards jerked him to his feet and pushed him along. The crowd hissed and cursed, cheering at each fall. Silence fell as First Citizen Micheletti rose from his throne on the platform, turned off his microphone, and walked down the steps to the stadium floor. The applause thundered around the amphitheater as Lars jerked his head for some sense of direction. Micheletti, soon to be known as Emperor Shane, 
approached him and raised his hand, this time brandishing a gilt dagger that he had withdrawn from his purple tunic. Teeth clenched and enraged, he clutched the bag along with a thick helping of Lars's hair and yanked the boy toward him, whispering, You stupid little fuck. You're going to be roasted alive, and you'll feel every fucking lick of those flames. Happy now? Lars tried to get free of the grip. He gasped and gurgled and wobbled up as straight as he could, pulling at the ropes to escape. The emperor sneered as he yanked him back against his chest. Too late, fuckwad! And he cut the rope around Lars's neck, ripping the bag off his head. The crowd roared. Lars gasped and puffed, sucking in dirt and air through the cloth gag. Micheletti turned on his microphone and bellowed, This is the ultimate victory, the triumph of justice, truth, and prosperity. Applause. All is avenged with this one confession. Micheletti bellowed as he waved the ubiquitous blank paper above his head. It's all right here. We have our murderer, our slayer of the innocent, our heinous terrorist and dangerous threat to our way of life. And we have come out of the fray unscathed. Applause. Our enemy who stands before us now is beaten. His punishment is having no part in our way of life. But we want to show clemency and we'll give him one more chance to save himself for just two names. He has no chance of winning this week's raffle, mind you. Boisterous laughter and applause. But he could save his life. Micheletti pulled Lars's hair to get his head up against the imperial chest. What do you say, hmm? He snarled. After the deafening silence, the emperor released Lars, who fell at his feet. We will hold a surprise national raffle drawing immediately. He waved to McDermott on the platform, who rolled out the barrel. A boy in a tunic stepped forward and drew the paper. McDermott nodded to him and caressed his ass before the youth sprinted to the throne, handing the paper to the emperor on bended knee. Micheletti raised the blank paper high and beamed, turning in a full circle for all to see. UNA! 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 The noise of the crowd swelled. Lars raised his head just enough to see the scarlet-robed boy turn and spit in his face. The emperor patted the boy on the head and sent him back with the other recent inductees. The palace guards surrounded Lars and stood over him until he got to his feet. They marched him out to the edge of the amphitheater, to the gaping mouth between the pillars, through which he and Rio had passed only a few years earlier. The guards led him to the edge of a huge pyre. The wood had already been ignited and the breeze fed it. They stood with him while the scissor-lift door that would raise him to the top of the pile opened. As the guards wrapped the iron chains around the rope and his hands, Lars shook them off and sprinted as the flames began to surge. Voices of protest rose from the crowd as various panicked shots were fired at the prisoner. 
Micheletti jumped to his feet. Lars had reached the foot of the throne at the center of the stadium floor in seconds and pulled the cloth from his mouth. Just as he opened his mouth, another shot was fired, and he fell. The blood, flowing from his head, soaked into the sand. UNA! 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 Furious, Micheletti bellowed off mic to McDermott. Dismiss these fucking people! The Emperor stormed down the steps and into the waiting limousine. Lars's body was dragged away by the feet, tossed into a truck, and driven to a deserted cove on the rocky end of a nearby beach. Concrete weights were tied to his feet and neck, and he was unceremoniously thrown into a small cruiser that sped out to open water, then dumped overboard. Soon, Lars's body sank, enveloped by the waves. A small group of half a dozen young people and one middle-aged woman, Lucy Farrow, crouched behind an embankment just off the road near the beach. They were close enough to the event, but far enough away to avoid notice. They would have been apprehended had they been seen, as it was quite suspect that a group of people of mixed gender and race were in such proximity of each other, as well as witnessing what they had no clearance to see. Part of a small but growing underground network, this group, led by Pharaoh, had discovered the disposal plan for what was supposed to have been Lars's charred remains. Sympathetic guards in the federal penitentiary where Lars had been held had sent word to the group. One person had an old set of binoculars, while another pointed a video recorder at the craft. The others kept silent vigil as they watched Lars's body splash into the water. Some had argued for a recovery mission after the waters were deserted in order to give Lars the dignified burial of a martyr, but surveillance made it too dangerous. Lucy Farrow remained behind, walked with stealth and caution to the edge of the water, and scooped some sand into a wooden box. She marked the spot in her memory. Addie and Rio left Los Angeles early the morning of the execution and arrived in Chicago as the stadium bells tolled noon. Addie drove from the airport as Rio tried to sleep, his head against the window. She rubbed his arm and he opened his eyes. Addie, you sure you don't want me to drive? I'm sure. You need to rest. Just tell me where to turn and then the side streets to the lake. You can be my untraceable GPS. Do you wish we would have stayed? He pinched his eyes closed and started to cry. I don't think I could have handled it. No. We would have blown our cover and handed that son of a bitch more glory. But just leaving him. His throat caught and he choked. He had nobody. I should have gone after him that night. He went to meet Portiana, that bitch. I could have found out where he was going from Carlisle. And then what would you have done? Who knows how many of her thugs were there? You'd be dead too, most likely. We need each other more than ever now. I know. He fingered the bracelet Lard has given him so long ago, it seemed. They rode in silence for a while. Rio stretched and yawned. 
the exit we want is in about 50 miles. 50 miles? I thought you said it was in Chicago. Yeah, everybody says that. It's in the region, like my uncle would say. Addie looked in the mirror. Well, it looks like we're definitely going to be left alone. She reached over and squeezed his hand as he drifted off to sleep again. Rio woke up and looked around. The place is off a dirt road a couple of miles from here. It's pretty desolate and the house is basically a shack, always been kind of dilapidated. No one's been there for a long time. I haven't seen it since I was like 10 or 11. Okay. Keep talking, it'll help you and me. My parents were going to buy it from my uncles, but that never happened. I think after my grandparents died, nobody came out here. I don't even know if the keys are going to work. She looked in the rearview mirror, confident they weren't followed. Rio pointed. The road we want is coming up, on the right. But seriously, Rio, we won't forget him. Addie reached out and cradled his chin. Yeah, I know. Maybe we can do something for him wherever we end up. She took his hand and kissed it. Of course. And we can do more for him right now by staying out of sight and alive. Okay, the, the house should be around here. Look for a tree with a twisted trunk. Well, more like two trees twisted around each other. There. Addie slowed down and made the sharp right turn, grazing branches and rolling over stones and limbs in the path. Let's leave the car here. It gets really sandy up farther, and we don't want to get stuck. It's about a ten-minute walk. They emptied the car, hoisted their gear onto their backs, and stumbled to the shack. Addie looked around as they both stood on the front porch. Dilapidated is a generous description, Rio. Whoa, it really is a dump. I don't think the key will be a problem. He pushed the door open and stood in the living room. He dropped what he carried onto the couch and waved away the cobwebs and dust. I'll check out the fireplace. I'm glad we brought the candles. The generator should do for now. Addie brushed off the webs from around her head. Cliff said he should be able to get us hooked into the electrical grid and water without detection within a week. Rio wandered through the kitchen into the back room and out onto the back porch. He stood facing the lake and closed his eyes. The waves hitting the rocks on the shore, birds squawking, and the wind blowing the leaves around the cottage all brought back happier days. Addie approached him after a while and wrapped her arms around him as he rested his head back against her chest and wondered how long they would be there. <laughs>